Chapter Twelve, Part One of Three Years in the Federal Cavalry by Willard Glazier. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jonathan Limebrook of Lake Elsinore, California. Chapter Twelve, Second Invasion of Maryland, Gettysburg, eighteen sixty-three, Invasion of the Northern States. Kilpatrick at Aldi, The Bloody Battle, Daring Deeds, Colonel Cesnola, 4th New York Cavalry, Incidents, Victory, Advance to Ashby's Gap, Pleasanton's Official Report, Rebel Movements on Free Soil, Difficulties in the North, the Cavalry Corps crosses the Potomac at Edwards Ferry. General Meade succeeds Hooker. For nearly two days we were prepared to march and awaiting orders when at last they came. At about six o'clock on the morning of the 16th, we took up our line of march which was mostly along the railroad in the direction of Manassas. Having arrived at these celebrated plains, we struck off a little to the left toward Centerville, where we arrived at ten o'clock, weary with the long journey. Here we ascertained that General Hooker's headquarters are at Fairfax Courthouse, or in the vicinity, and that his army covers the approaches to Washington. June 17. After a refreshing night's rest, we were up early in the morning, and resumed our march at six o'clock, taking the Warrenton Turnpike. Kilpatrick has the advance of the Corps. We soon crossed the memorable fields of the two Bull Run battles, past the famous field of Groveton, and there, deflecting to the right, and pushing forward rapidly, we arrived by noon in sight of the hills which partially surround the village of Aldi on the north side of the Bull Run Mountains. Kilpatrick had been directed to move through Aldi, and thence to and through Ashby's Gap in the Blue Ridge, learn all he could of the enemy's movements, and then, returning, to rejoin the Corps at Nolan's Ferry on the Potomac. Colonel Dufier, with his regiment, the 1st Rhode Island, was ordered to move through Thoroughfare Gap, and to join Kilpatrick in Pleasant Valley beyond. These plans were laid with the presumption that no very heavy force of rebels remained north of the Blue Ridge, and none at all north of the Bull Run Mountains. But this was a great mistake. Bloody Battle of Aldi James Moore, M.D., surgeon of the ninth pennsylvania cavalry thus describes what occurred to kilpatrick and his command at this place quote, scarcely had his advance reached the town of aldi when it came directly upon the advance guard of w h f lee it was entirely unexpected no enemy was supposed to be on the aldi side of the bull run mountains the general rode to the front ran his eye over the field for a moment, and then rapidly gave his orders. He had taken in the whole field at one rapid glance, 
and saw the important points that must be gained. The Harris Light Cavalry was directed to charge straight down the road, through the town, gain and hold the long, low hill over which runs the road from Middleburg. With anxious eye he watched the charge on which so much depended, saw that it was successful, and resolutely pushed in one regiment after another on the right of the Harris Light, till the high hills far on the right of Aldi were gained. This fine disposition was made, an important position won, before the rebel general Fitzhugh Lee could make a single effort to prevent it, although he had a division of cavalry at his back. He soon recovered, however, from the temporary surprise, and for two hours made the most desperate efforts to regain the position lost. He struck the right, left, and center in quick succession, while his battery of Blakely guns thundered forth their messengers of death. But all in vain. Kilpatrick's gallant men, the heroes of Brandy Station, met and hurled back each charge, while Randall's battery, ignoring entirely the rebel guns, sent his canister and shells tearing through the heavy columns of the enemy. On this day Kilpatrick did wonders. He fought under the eye of his chief, and where bullets flew the thickest, and where the shock came the heaviest, there rang his cheering voice, and there flashed his sabre. His own regiment, the Harris Light, had failed to meet his hopes on the plains of Brandy Station. This was known to the officers of that splendid organization, and on that very morning they had petitioned their general for an opportunity to retrieve their reputation. The opportunity was at hand. A large force of the enemy occupied a strong position behind rail barricades encircling large stacks of hay. For a long time rebel sharpshooters, from this secure position, had baffled every attempt to advance our lines on the left. The general ordered up a battalion of the Harris Light, Quickly they came, addressing a few encouraging words to the men, and then turning to Major McIrvin, the officer in command, he said, pointing to the barricades, Major, there is the opportunity you have asked for. Go, take that position. Away dashed this officer and his men. In a moment the enemy was reached, and the struggle began. The horses could not leap the barricade, but the men dismounted, scaled those formidable barriers, and, with drawn sabres, rushed upon the hidden foe, who quickly asked for quarter. Another incident occurred worth mentioning. Colonel Cessnola, of the 4th New York Cavalry, had that morning, through mistake, been placed under arrest, and his sword, being taken from him, was without arms. But in one of these wild charges, made early in the contest, his regiment hesitated. Forgetting that he was under arrest and without command, he flew to the head of his regiment, reassured his men, and without a weapon to give or ward a blow, led them to the charge. This gallant act was seen by his general, who, meeting him on his return, said, Colonel, you are a brave man. 
you are released from arrest, and, taking his own sword from his side, handed it to the colonel, saying, Here is my sword. Wear it in honor of this day. In the next charge, Colonel Cesnola fell, desperately wounded, and was taken prisoner. The rebel general, being foiled at every point, resolved to make one more desperate effort. Silently and quickly he massed a heavy force upon our extreme right, and, led by General Rosser, made one of the most desperate and determined charges of the day. Kilpatrick was aware of this movement, and satisfied that his men, exhausted as they were, could not withstand the charge, had already sent for reinforcements. Before these could reach him, the shock came. The first Massachusetts had the right, and fought as only brave men could, to stem the tide that steadily bore them back, until the whole right gave way. Back rushed our men in wild confusion, and on came the victorious rebel horsemen. The general saw with anguish his flying soldiers, yet in his extremity retained his presence of mind, and proved himself worthy the star he had won at Brandy Station. Sending orders for the center and left to stand fast, he placed himself at the head of the first main, sent to his assistance, and coolly waited till the rebel charging columns had advanced within fifty yards of Randall's guns. He then shouted forward, and the same regiment that saved the day at Brandy Station was destined to save the day at Aldi. Rosser's men could not withstand the charge, but broke and fled up the hill. The general's horse was killed in the charge, and here the brave Colonel Doty fell. The general determined now to complete the victory, and, mounting a fresh horse, he urged on the first Maine and first Massachusetts, sent orders for his whole line to advance, and then sounded the charge. Lee struggled for a few minutes against this advance, and then ordered a retreat, which ended in a rout. His troops were driven in confusion as far as Middleburg, and night alone saved the remnant of his command. This was by far the most bloody cavalry battle of the war. The rebel chivalry had again been beaten, and Kilpatrick, who was the only general on the field, at once took a proud stand among the most famous of our Union cavalry generals. The fame of our cavalry was now much enhanced, and caused the greatest joy to the nation. End quote. June 18. General Pleasanton was anxious to press the rebel cavalry back upon their infantry, to ascertain minutely their movements. Hence, today, Kilpatrick was ordered to advance through the Bull Run Mountains, and to occupy Middleburg. Jaded as we were, as well as our horses, with the fearful yet glorious labors of the previous day, with mercury up to 98 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade, and 122 degrees in the sun, with an atmosphere unusually oppressive for Virginia, and through dust, which many trampling hoofs made almost intolerable, we marched into Pleasant Valley. 
The outpost of the Rebel cavalry was met near the town, but they were driven from the streets, and we took possession of Middleburg. About three o'clock in the afternoon a heavy wind arose, betokening rain, which began to fall about five o'clock, mingled with hail. For this atmospheric change we had earnestly prayed. The heat had become so oppressive, and the roads so dusty as to make our movements very unpleasant and disastrous to men and beasts, especially to the latter. In this beautiful region of country we spent a few days very pleasantly, recruiting our strength and awaiting orders. Cavalry Battle at Upperville June 21 The Cavalry Corps, with General Pleasanton at its head, moved at eight o'clock this morning in the direction of Ashby's Gap in the Blue Ridge. We had not proceeded far before we encountered the rebel pickets, which we drove steadily before us. Their strength, however, greatly increased as we advanced. Quite a large force contested our progress when we entered Carrtown, and from this place to Upperville the engagement was a little too heavy to be called a skirmish. Nevertheless, we pushed ahead without being seriously retarded until we reached Upperville. Here our advance was met with great desperation, the enemy charging us handsomely, but with no great damage. When our forces had been properly arranged and the right time had come, Kilpatrick was ordered to charge the town. With drawn sabers, weapons in which the general always had great confidence and generally won success, and with yells which made the mountains and plains resound, we rushed upon the foe. The fray was terrible. Several times did the rebels break, but being reinforced or falling back upon some better position, again endeavored to baffle our efforts. But they were not equal to the task, and we drove them through the village of Paris and finally through Ashby's Gap upon their infantry columns in the Shenandoah Valley. In these charges and chase we captured two pieces of artillery, four caissons, several stand of small arms, and a large number of prisoners. It was my misfortune, in one of those desperate encounters, to have a favorite horse shot under me but it was also my fortune to escape from the deadly missiles which filled the air, and from my fallen horse unhurt. Another animal was soon provided for me from the captures we had made. Our scouts, during this engagement, had managed to gain an entrance into the valley, where they ascertained that the rebel army, in heavy columns, was advancing towards the upper Potomac. This fight was of sufficient importance to call forth from the commanding general the following official document, quote, Headquarters, Cavalry Corps, Camp near Upperville, 5.20 p.m., June 21. Brigadier General S. Williams. General, I moved with my command this morning to Middleburg and attacked the cavalry force of the rebels under Stuart, and steadily drove him all day, 
inflicting a heavy loss at every step. I drove him through Upperville into Ashby's Gap. We took two pieces of artillery, one being a Blakely gun, and three caissons, besides blowing up one, also upwards of sixty prisoners, and more are coming, a lieutenant colonel, major, and five other officers, besides a wounded colonel, and a large number of wounded rebels left in the town of Upperville. They left their dead and wounded upon the field. Of the former I saw upward of twenty. We also took a large number of carbines, pistols, and sabers. In fact, it was a most disastrous day to the rebel cavalry. Our loss has been very small, both in men and horses. I never saw the troops behave better, or under more difficult circumstances. Very heavy charges were made, and the sabre used freely, but always with great advantage to us. A. Pleasanton, Brigadier General. The day following this decided victory by force of arms, and by the stratagem of scouts who obtained all needful information as to the intentions of the enemy, the cavalry corps retired from Ashby's Gap and established its headquarters at Aldi. Our outposts are near Middleburg. We are now receiving some exciting news from Maryland and the North. It appears that rebel cavalry was raiding through Maryland, destroying railroads and bridges, telegraph lines and depots, and making havoc on the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal as early as the 15th instant, and that General Ewell, with a corps of infantry, crossed the Potomac at Williamsport on the 16th, and advanced via Hagerstown towards Pennsylvania. A sad and distressing alarm seems to have aroused the North. General Lee's advance thus far, excepting the repulses of his cavalry on his right flank, has been a perfect success. It is true that Washington, the glittering prize before him, has been protected by General Hooker's cautious movements. But this protection of the capital has consumed time and given the enemy a decided advantage in other quarters. He had already entered the free states before we fairly understood his intentions. Winchester, an important post in the Shenandoah Valley, guarded by General Milroy, was nearly surrounded by the advancing rebel hordes, before our general even dreamed that he was in jeopardy. The few of our men who escaped from that garrison were greatly demoralized, while about four thousand were made prisoners, and many heavy guns, small arms, wagons, horses, and stores of all kinds fell into the enemy's hands. These blunders on our part and losses together with the prowess and boast of the rebel legions, gave the malcontents of the North and political tricksters a coveted opportunity to rail against the administration and to weaken, as far as their influence could be felt, the confidence which had been reposed in it. The President was represented as an imbecile, utterly devoid of statesmanship. The army was berated with no measured terms. 
Every reverse of fortune was attributed to want of brains and heart in the heads of departments. The Republic had certainly fallen upon dark days. General Lee, undoubtedly, expected to make capital out of this state of things, and hoped that by winning a grand victory on northern soil, so to cripple the administration and to demoralize the political party in power, that he could secure the aid and comfort of the opposing party, and thus compel the North to submit to any terms of peace which the anomalous Confederacy might dictate. Notwithstanding the threatening posture of military affairs, and that the government was thoroughly alarmed and ordered out the militia of Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York, Ohio, West Virginia, and other states, the call being faithfully re-echoed by the governors of those states, the responses were comparatively faint and fell far short of the numbers which had been demanded. New York City alone responded generously. The uniformed and disciplined regiments there generally and promptly went to the contest, and appeared where they were needed. For this, the governor of the state was publicly thanked by the Secretary of War. June 25. We are informed that our infantry and artillery, with small detachments of cavalry, are advancing through Maryland to meet and repel the invaders, who are reported to be crossing the Potomac in two heavy columns at Shepherdstown and Williamsport. Every department of the service seems to be in commotion, and great things are expected. A heavy rain set in early this evening. June 26. At six o'clock this morning we broke camp at Aldi and advanced towards Leesburg, spending the night near this place. Most of our time has been spent in the saddle. This is becoming not only our seat, but also our bed and pillow. June 27. At 5 o'clock a.m., our corps commenced its march towards Edwards Ferry on the Potomac. On our way to the ferry, we crossed the famous battlefield of Ball's Bluff, where Colonel Baker, and many of his gallant Californians became an early and costly sacrifice to the cause of the Union. On reaching the river, we found the two pontoon bridges over which already a large portion of our army had passed on before us. They had been much retarded by the heavy rains and mud. The approaches to the pontoons had been so trodden by the myriad feet of men and beasts and cut by the heavy wheels of laden wagons and artillery, that we found the road almost bottomless. But as we had seen mud many times before, we moved forward undismayed, though somewhat retarded, and were soon on northern soil. A somewhat strange feeling came over us on finding ourselves marching mainly towards the North Star to meet the enemy, whereas we had so long been accustomed to look and march only southward for this purpose. Our march lay through a fine and fertile section of country. The vast fields of grain are ripening for the harvest, and their appearance indicates that thus far the labors of the husbandman have not been in vain. 
peacefulness of the fields and flocks presents a striking contrast to the warlike preparations which are now being made for what must be the most decisive and bloody contest of the war. The rebellion seems to have risked its very existence in the coming conflict, which cannot be many days hence. Determination and desperation seem foremost in the movement. On our side, a solemn decision seems to be actuating the masses. We know that should the stars and bars be victorious again, and at this crisis of our national affairs, as they were at the two Bull Run battles, and at Chancellorsville, our stars and stripes will not only be shamefully humbled, but suffer cruel elimination. In such an event, some of our stars must fall, and some of the beams of our light must be obscured. Quote, but conquer we must, for our cause is just, and this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave, o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. End quote. Sunday, June twenty-eighth. All night long we were on the march, arriving in the vicinity of Frederick City early in the morning. The whole country for miles seems to be covered with soldiers. This is one of the most beautiful spots in the world. However, the city does not show the thrift and prosperity which are evidenced in northern cities enjoying similar advantages. This is the capital of Frederick County, one of the richest in the state. Looking southward from the city, we behold an almost interminable stretch of beautiful rolling land, nearly every inch of which is not only arable, but richly productive. On the east, at a distance of several miles, the eye rests upon a range of hills which sweep down towards the Potomac, terminating in the lofty peak called Sugarloaf. Westward rises the loftier chain of Catoctin, which is but a continuation of the Bull Run Mountains, severed by the river at Point of Rocks. All the highest peaks of these hills and mountains are now used for signal stations, where they wave the signal flags by day and flash the signal fires by night. One seldom wearies in watching these operations, though he may not understand their significance. Change of Commanders This has been a day of much interest among us, and of no little excitement. A day of changes and reorganization. An exciting rumor was bandied from man to man this morning that General Hooker was about to be relieved from the command of the Grand Army, and the day was only partly spent when the strange rumor resolved itself into the astounding truth. The facts which led to this result may not be perfectly understood among us, but appear to be about as follows. On discovering that the enemy had actually invaded the northern states, General Hooker requested the authorities to send him all the forces which could be spared from General Heintzelman's command in and about the defenses of Washington. This was done. But, having crossed the Potomac, 
General Hooker visited Harper's Ferry with its strong garrison, and immediately urged upon the government the importance of placing this force also under his command. Upon this subject there sprang up a sharp controversy between Hooker and Halleck. The latter rejoined to the former in these words, quote, Maryland Heights have always been regarded as an important point to be held by us, and much expense and labor incurred in fortifying them. I cannot approve of their abandonment except in case of absolute necessity. End quote. General Hooker's reply to this shows him to have been in the right, and to have comprehended the relative importance of the position in question. Quote, I have received your telegram in regard to Harper's Ferry. I find 10,000 men here in condition to take the field. Here they are of no earthly account. They cannot defend a ford of the river, and so, as far as Harper's Ferry is concerned, there is nothing of it. As for the fortifications, the work of the troops, they remain when the troops are withdrawn. This is my opinion. All the public property could have been secured tonight, and the troops marched to where they could have been of some service. Now they are but a bait for the rebels, should they return. I beg that this may be presented to the Secretary of War and His Excellency, the President. End quote. Receiving no direct reply to this announcement, and goaded by the pressure of fast-moving events, our general yielded to do what many of us heartily condemn by sending the following message quote, Sandy Hook, Maryland, June twenty seventh, eighteen sixty three. Major General H. W. Halleck, General in Chief. My original instructions require me to cover Harper's Ferry and Washington. I have now imposed upon me, in addition, an enemy in my front of more than my numbers. I beg to be understood respectfully, but firmly, that I am unable to comply with this condition, with the means at my disposal, and earnestly request that I may at once be relieved from the position I occupy. Joseph Hooker, Major General. End quote. Today came the order relieving General Hooker, who issued the following characteristic farewell address to the troops, many of whom were taken wholly by surprise, and all of them appeared greatly afflicted. Quote, Headquarters, Army of the Potomac, Frederick, Maryland, June 28, 1863. In conformity with the orders of the War Department, dated June 27, 1863, I relinquish the command of the Army of the Potomac. It is transferred to Major General George G. Meade, a brave and accomplished officer, who has nobly earned the confidence and esteem of the Army on many a well-fought field. Impressed with the belief that my usefulness as the commander of the Army of the Potomac is impaired, I part from it, yet not without the deepest emotions. The sorrow of parting with the comrades of so many battles is relieved by the conviction that the courage and devotion of this army will never cease nor fail. 
that it will yield to my successor, as it has to me, a willing and hearty support. With the earnest prayer that the triumph of this army may bring successes worthy of it and the nation, I bid it farewell. Joseph Hooker, Major General. End quote. Such a change of regime on the eve of a great battle, with the command in the hands of one less known and trusted, at first seemed to threaten disaster. But the modest, earnest words with which the new commander framed his first order to the troops allayed all fears, renewed confidence, and greatly attached him to the hearts of his subordinates. Quote, Headquarters, Army of the Potomac, June 28, 1863. By direction of the President of the United States, I hereby assume command of the Army of the Potomac. As a soldier, in obeying this order, an order totally unexpected and unsolicited, I have no promises or pledges to make. The country looks to this army to relieve it from the devastation and disgrace of a hostile invasion. Whatever fatigues and sacrifices we may be called to undergo, let us have in view constantly the magnitude of the interests involved, and let each man determine to do his duty, leaving to an all-controlling providence the decision of the contest. It is with just diffidence that I relieved, in the command of this army, an eminent and accomplished soldier, whose name must ever appear conspicuous in the history of its achievements. But I rely upon the hearty support of my companions in arms to assist me in the discharge of the duties of the important trust which has been confided to me. George G. Meade, Major General Commanding. End quote. This change of commanders was followed by others in various branches of the service, not excepting the Cavalry Corps. Our force has been increased by General Julius Stale's division, which has been employed for some time in the vicinity of Fairfax Courthouse and along the line of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. In the reorganization, the Corps, which continues under the efficient command of General Pleasanton, is arranged into three divisions, the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, commanded respectively by Generals Buford, Gregg, and Kilpatrick. A more effective cavalry force was never organized on this continent, and probably on no other. The Harris Light is assigned to General Gregg's division, which separates us for the first time from our former beloved commander. But we are not among those who desire to shirk responsibility for any such cause as this. After the division had been reorganized and reviewed, in the afternoon we took up our line of march to New Market. Some rain fell towards night, which laid the dust and allayed the heat. Men and horses are living well upon the rich products of the country. Upon such supplies we rely mainly, though our trains are not wholly destitute. We are received with more or less enthusiasm and demonstrations of patriotism 
in nearly all the towns we visit, making a very striking contrast with our former receptions in cities and towns of Virginia. This gives our men additional courage, and nerves us for the conflicts impending. June 29. We have been in the saddle nearly all day, scouting the country in the neighborhood of Westminster. On the morning of the 30th, about nine o'clock, the regiment entered this pleasant town, the citizens flocking from all directions to pay us their respects and to show their devotion to the cause of the Union. After a short halt, we advanced to Manchester. July 1. Today we marched to Hanover Junction, Pennsylvania, where we met the enemy's cavalry under General John Jenkins, and, after a spirited skirmish, they were forced to retire. The Pennsylvanians welcomed us with glad cheers, and showed their appreciation of our presence and services by driving several hucksters' wagons into our midst, well laden with great variety of eatables, which were donated to us by the good citizens of the surrounding country. It is true that some of the inhabitants made their gifts very sparingly, and not without grudging, while others charged enormous prices for such articles as we were willing to purchase. But justice demands that we state that such inhospitable, unpatriotic, and niggardly souls were the exception. While here we learned the particulars of important movements made by other portions of our cavalry, Kilpatrick, with his vigorous division, left the vicinity of Frederick on Monday, and, striking northward, he passed through Taneytown, reaching Littletown at about ten o'clock at night, where he was received in the midst of great rejoicing. A large group of children and young ladies, gaily attired on the balcony of a hotel, waving handkerchiefs and flags, greeted their defenders with patriotic songs, while the heroic troopers responded with cheers which made the welkin ring. The command bivouacked in the vicinity of the village, where the citizens brought abundant forage for the horses, and the cavalrymen rested till morning. The march was then resumed in the direction of Hanover. The column, which was several miles in length, entered this beautiful town, and was passing through, while the citizens were regaling the men sumptuously from their bountifully provided larders, and interchanging friendly and patriotic greetings, neither party suspecting the presence of the enemy. Nearly one-half the column had already passed through when suddenly the quiet social scene was disturbed by the opening of a rebel battery concealed on a wood-crowned hill, and so posted as to rake a portion of the road upon which the Union forces entered the town. This was immediately followed by a charge of rebel cavalry, which had been drawn up in line of battle just behind a chain of hills, which ran near and parallel to the highway. There they had quietly waited until the train was passing before them, with the hope that this might be captured or stampeded, and a glorious victory be won. 
General Stuart commanded in person, and the attack was certainly well planned. But Kilpatrick's boys were not to be disconcerted nor panic stricken by any such or any other trap. The main force of the charging column happened to be in the rear of the Fifth New York, commanded by Major Hammond. Quick work was necessary. Rapidly moving out of the street into the open park near the railroad depot, Major Hammond drew his regiment in line of battle, and in nearly as short time as it takes to record it, charged with drawn sabers the rebels, who then possessed the town. The charging columns met on Frederick Street, where a fierce and bloody hand-to-hand contest ensued. For a few moments the enemy made heroic resistance, but soon broke and fled, closely pursued. They rallied again and again as fresh regiments came to their aid, but they were met, hurled back, and pursued with irresistible onsets, which compelled them to retire not only from the town, but also behind the hills under cover of their batteries. In less than fifteen minutes from the time the rebels charged into the village, they were driven from it, leaving the streets strewn with their dead men and horses, and the debris which always accompanies such a conflict. The dead of both parties lay promiscuously about the street, so covered with blood and dust as to render identification, in some cases, very difficult. The blue of the Union and the gray of rebellion were almost entirely obliterated, and in many instances the contending parties mingled their blood in one common pool. This work of destruction had but just commenced when Generals Kilpatrick and Farnsworth, who, though some miles distant at the head of the column when the booming cannon announced the bloody fray, arrived in hot haste and took personal charge of the movements. These were ordered with consummate skill and executed with promptness and success. Elder's battery, well posted on the hills facing the rebels and well supported, soon silenced the guns of the enemy and drove him in the direction of Lee's main army. He was thoroughly punished for his audacious attack and left many dead, wounded, and captured. The colors of the 13th Virginia Cavalry were captured by a sergeant of the 5th New York. About 75 prisoners, beside the wounded, fell into our hands, including Lieutenant Colonel Payne, who commanded a brigade. The particulars of his capture are worthy of historic record. In one of the charges made in the edge of the town, one of our boys, by the name of Abram Folger, was captured by Colonel Payne, and marched toward the rear. Just outside the town was a large brick tannery, the vats of which were not under cover, and close alongside of the highway. Folger was walking beside the Colonel's orderly. As they approached the tan vats, he espied a carbine laying on the ground. Quick as thought, he seized it, fired, and killed Payne's horse. The animal, in his death struggle, plunged over towards the vats, and Payne was thrown headlong into one of them, 
becoming completely submerged in the tan liquid. Folger, feeling that the colonel was secure enough for the moment, leveled his piece on the orderly, who, finding that his pistol was fouled and hence useless, attempted to jump his horse over the fence, but not succeeding, surrendered. It happened, however, that Folger had expended the last shot in the carbine on the colonel's horse, but, as the orderly did not know it, it was just as well for Folger as though more ammunition had been on hand. The recently made prisoner was compelled to assist his colonel from the vat. His gray uniform, with white velvet trimmings, his white gauntlets, and his face and hair had received a brief but thorough tanning. Folger marched the two in front of him to the market-place in the center of the village, where he delivered his captives to the authorities. In one hand the brave soldier-boy carried his empty carbine, and in the other a good strong stick. It was a most ludicrous and interesting scene. Folger was captured by Payne's command in Virginia the winter before this affair, and his feelings may be imagined at having so nicely returned the compliment. The citizens of Hanover, who so nobly cared for our wounded in the hospitals during and after the battle, and assisted us in burying our dead, will not soon forget that terrible last day of June. Our brave boys, who, though taken by surprise, had so valiantly defeated the enemy, built their bivouac fires and rested for the night on the field of their recent victory. Stuart's cavalry was now losing caste, while our troopers were not only adding fresh laurels to their chaplet of renown, but also new fibers of vitality to the hearts and hands which loved and defended the sacred tree of liberty. End of chapter 12, part 1